Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. So thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who's no stranger to the Jew3 Project, Dr. Dennis Edwards. Welcome, Dr. Edwards. Hi, thanks. It's good to be back with you, Lisa. I'm glad to have you back. We uh, had you on to talk about um, coming from um, oneness to, Pente- um, to Trinitar- a Trinitarian viewpoint. And um, for those who don't know, you are, in addition to being a pastor, you are also a New Testament professor. Um, you have your PhD um, in biblical studies and with a focus on New Testament. Is that correct? That's right. That's correct. Exactly okay. right. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't want to tell too much of your bio. I'll let you tell it because I know you know it better than I. <laughs> um, those who, who didn't watch the, the first episode you were on, could you just give them a little bit about uh, yourself? Sure. I, uh, I'm a New Yorker who now lives in Minneapolis. I serve a church called the Sanctuary Covenant Church. Um, but briefly, I, um, I grew in my faith during my college years. And after a call to ministry, I, uh, I did a uh, Master of Divinity degree at Trinity Seminary. Oh, my undergrad was in uh, chemical engineering from Cornell. Oh, wow. And then I did it. Yeah, I kind of not doing much engineering. Well, in a manner of speaking, <laughs> I kind of engineer in different ways now. But, um, but after my MDiv, I was a church planter in New York for a while, served some churches in Washington, D.C., including one I planted. And, um, and then while in D.C., I did an MA and Ph.D. in biblical studies at the Catholic University of America. Over the years, I've taught um, adjunct for different places, particularly Bethel Seminary, especially when they had an extension called Seminary of the East. And now, since I'm in the Twin Cities, I teach at the St. Paul campus. And I've taught other places as well. But that's basically it. I married and got four adult children. That's awesome. That's awesome. So today we want to talk about um, the dating and authorship of New Testament writings. Um, This is really, as I was telling you before, this is really a passion of mine um, because Hmm. until we kind of have some kind of common uh, thought about or some kind of, how do I want to say it? Uh, Dr. Howard John Wesley said it like this. If we can't agree on two plus two being four, we can never talk about calculus. And when we and he said that in reference to understanding the scriptures. And if we can't agree that the Bible is authoritative, we can never go on to talk about issues in the scripture. Um, And so this is important to me because my first New Testament course, we had Bart Ehrman. Um, because I took New Testament mm-hmm. at a state university, so you're going to get a more liberal perspective. And Bart Ehrman is uh, one of the leading New Testament scholars in the liberal circles. And so the dating and authorship and all that stuff was a real struggle for me. And when the foundation of scripture was really rocked for me, I had really trouble navigating through my faith because that's the foundation, the Bible. And so um, I definitely want to talk about it on here. And I thought you would be one of the people that can help us with that. Uh, Cause I know it's, it's been a long journey with for me. That was back in 2007 when I first was exposed to that. And uh, 
So I've had to wrestle through uh, reading and thinking through that. So I was like, I, I should help other people that might be wrestling with it mm-hmm. too. So um, oh, appreciate that. That's great. <laughs> so depending on who you ask, the dating of New Testament writings may vary. What's the general um, dating of New Testament writings and why is it important? Hmm. Yeah, a very fair question. I mean, part of the issue is, of course, what what materials we have, right? We don't have original autographs by these authors. We've got a manuscript tradition. And noto- and dating is notoriously difficult. So dating is often done by the internal evidence, right? What the, what the letters say about themselves, say about the time, what, what references they might make to historical events, how, how they communicate, um, um, uh, how they communicate in the sense of the actual language, words. I mean, that's an issue for Old Testament writings as well as New Testament writings. Generally, um, we see the earliest letter thought to be from the, oh, I guess I should say this too, that, that the tradition that we've gotten from the church uh, through Papias, uh, recorded by Eusebius, who is third century, um, we, we, have, uh, we have at least the historical tradition related to the writing. So that has to be factored in as well, too, is, is what, what have we gained from the church tradition. So all of that is a factor. Also, the tradition tells us around that pretty strongly that, um, that Peter and Paul were martyred uh, hand. So that would put a, a terminus, an end date somewhere around, you know, the, the mid-60s in terms of when uh, they could have been writing. So that, that, and then we've got the fall of Jerusalem in 70. So there are these historical times that, that we try to connect the writings to. So generally speaking then, Paul's letters would have to be dated before you know, the mid 60s. And, uh, and the gospels, because they seem to touch on the fall of Jerusalem, are usually dated around 70, somewhere around 70. So that's, that's generally the sense. Then you would have writings that seem to be addressing uh, heresies that were starting to creep into the church. So that means the church has been around long enough for some for some other uh, ideas to start to emerge. You know, some kind of uh, incipient Gnosticism, for example, that starts to creep in. So you have writings that seem to deal with that. And if that's the case, then like um, toward the end of the first century, because that's when these heresies were thought to, to be uh, on the scene, or at least starting to be, be on the scene. So, so we have a range from, let's say, the 40s, sometime after Paul's conversion, to the, to the 90s, let's say, uh, before the end of the first century, with the letters of Paul being earlier, uh, Gospels being around 70, and then some of the other letters, the general epistles being later, and Revelation being later. So that's a, that's a quick uh, assessment of the landscape. Mm-hmm. And I think that's in, that's really important because one of the things that you see when you talk um, to different scholars with different viewpoints, the dating is important because if we can date some of the gospels or the letters later than the actual authors were there, then we there, that becomes a problem because it's like, who wrote this? And can we trust who wrote it? And are they making up or adding two stories they heard? So if in fact Paul didn't write this letter and somebody later wrote it and they attributed it to 
it to Paul. How can we trust uh, the authenticity of that of that letter? That's that's often the the challenge, and that is one one part of the question. I guess I would say to it though that um, it was I trust my forebears, and that in the formation of the of the canon, they wrestled with with issues related to um, how the writings we have reflect the actual beliefs and practice of the church, mm -hmm. as well as their connection to the apostles. And, and the fact of the matter is we have some writings that we don't know who wrote them. Now it's different to have a name of someone on there and it not be that, and then claim that it not be written by that person. Mm -hmm. For example, second Peter, and we can come back to that uh, as, as, as we need to. But it's quite another thing. We have the book of Hebrews and we don't know who wrote it, yet we rely on that, that book. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the case of the Old Testament, we have a lot of several writings that we don't know who wrote them, see them as authoritative. So part of the issue is understanding what's maybe meant by, by the canon in terms of its uh, you know, uh, authority. Um, and, then, and then how much do we need to have uh, to, uh, how important is it that we know the author? So I think one of the questions you bring up, though, is his name on it, and then folks claiming that it wasn't written by that person. That's that's the trickier part, in my view. So it's not to me that I don't know who wrote something. It's more the question of, is it the person whose name is on the book? Mm -hmm. um, in the case of the Gospels, there are no names on the Gospels. That's that's from a tradition that that. Matthew, the tax collector, wrote Matthew. For some people, it really is. For others, it's not that important. The question would be, what is he communicating? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I put that out there for, for folks <laughs> to, to think about. So it is important that we trust um, the reliability of the works. And that may touch on authorship. I'll put it like that. Yeah, and I think that's that's really a really good point you made. And I, one of the things we um, that I always am really passionate about, and I think we kind of connect on that, is that depending on which which schools you're trained in, your your thoughts about authorship, and then it's going to be completely different. So, from my experience, my first um, interaction with the dating was Bar Ehrman. So that was a extremely more so liberal late dating of the text in a lot of instances yeah. and kind of, you know, really thinking through whether Paul wrote some of these letters. So, and then I went to a more conservative, which is Liberty. And so hmm. I found myself in the middle because I feel like that's <laughs> the most intellectually honest um, position. Hmm. And so as you're working through it on an apologetic level, it's kind of, it's, it, it, you have to like work through the nuances and I think that uh, we both agree on that. Yeah, well, that's true. And I appreciate you saying that. And part of it, yes, has to do with where I was trained. But even when I was trained uh, for my MDiv at a, at a pretty conservative place, Trinity, um, we were at least exposed to notions of uh, what's known as pseudepigrapha. Mm -hmm. And just to explain that term, it's the idea that... Uh, you know, it's not quite plagiarism. It's the idea that someone wrote on with some with another person's name, and and uh, and while that happened outside of religious circles, uh, at least outside of Christian circles, we know the you know it's a it, it's it's debated if that happened within Christian circles. But that idea of 
writing in the name of your mentor, writing in the name of the person who that was a practice outside at least of, of Christianity we know. So when I, when I was trained at, at, at Trinity, that we were taught that. So we knew that there were some issues of authorship and I was exposed to that. When I was at um, Catholic doing my PhD, I was there too. But admittedly, some folks had a stronger line on it. One of my revered professors, Raymond Collins, it's entitled The Seven Letters Paul Did Not Write. So he's pretty straightforward in of, of seven um, New Testament letters. Um, now, apart from Hebrews, that would leave six that, that uh, because I think evangelicals would even question whether Paul wrote Hebrews, but that still leaves six that he is pretty sure Paul didn't write, even though his name's on them. So, so I would say that, um, yes, I was exposed to those, those ideas in both the settings and, and given evidence. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I do see myself, um, as a person, especially with my engineering degree, who just who looks at the evidence and considers that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's important. It's funny because as you're saying that at Liberty, we were exposed to both views. But when I was at University of North Florida, we were ex only exposed to one view. And it was ah. as if that nothing else existed, like this was the solid data. Ah. So at the more conservative place, I got both at more at the state university, I only got, so it was only on my own studies before I went to get my MDF that I had to kind of open myself up to that. And so it's funny how sometimes what the people that claim to be open-minded <laughs> have limited the perspective in that regard. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> what do we know about and I'm reading here for those who are looking. Uh, what do we know about the letters the early church accepted and rejected? Hmm. What do we know about which letters the early church accepted and rejected? Let, let me mention some good uh, resources, and I'll try to answer that. There's a couple of good resources just to um, start out by that talk about the canon. Bruce Metzger. Um, it's the book is called the canon of the new testament where he explains that in detail and that's a little bit um i actually have it sitting right here sorry <laughs> right here the um the other is also um by a late scholar ff bruce and it's a small book it's quite accessible it's called um the new testament documents are they reliable and that both of those works get at the question of of the canon which is really what you're i think what you're asking but in so so early on to form um starting to hold on to writings we know this even from second peter where he refers to the, the, the writings of paul so at some point in the church's development we know that they were collecting these writings we know that they were sharing them like at the end of uh Colossians, where it says, read the letter I sent to the Laodiceans and make sure that they read this one. So we know that writings were shared and that they were starting to get collected. And sometime, uh, well, as time went on, the church was starting to need, was needing to decide which writings um, communicated the history and the, and I'm sorry, the, uh, let's say the doctrines that they held on to historically. And because there were more writings that were starting to creep in that didn't reflect what we might call orthodox faith. 
why the councils started to emerge, and that's why they had to make decisions, and eventually came up with the with the twenty seven books that we have. But there were, but some were disputed along the way. There were people who had some theological perspectives that didn't think certain books should be part, like Marcion. He wanted to keep out certain books. He had more Gnostic views, so he wanted to keep out certain certain books. So the church debated this for some time. So I think that's kind of uh, what you're getting at in your question. Yeah. Um, it's funny because the first time I was exposed to, um, like, you know, the thoughts about Marcin and, you know, having some books accepted and some books, there was um, a point um, Bart Ehrman tries to highlight the, Paul, the Pauline epistles and the authorship of the Pauline epistles. We kind of generally accept Paul wrote them, um, but a lot of scholars would argue that he only wrote, I think it's seven of them. I think it's seven that they generally, seven or eight. Am I, I getting that right? Yeah, I, I, I tend to think in terms of ones that people don't accept. <laughs> so, and then you can do what's left. But the ones that are usually in dispute are Ephesians, Colossians, Second Thessalonians, and then the three pastorals, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. That's six. And then Hebrews would be seven. But as I said, there's sort of um, very few who would, who would defend Pauline authorship of Ephesians. So, I mean, of uh, Hebrews. So those would be those six that would be in question. Mm-hmm. Why, why would those be in question? Yeah, and the arguments tend to be related to you know, vocabulary, um, issues that don't readily come out in English, but then also uh, historicity. So let me, let me try to explain. So say, for example, in Ephesians, right? Uh, if you look at the book of Acts, Paul spent a good deal of time in Ephesus. And when he left, in fact, there's a very poignant of him leaving Ephesus and, uh, and a very tearful farewell. If you look at the book of Ephesians, you know, there's some textual issues. One is the, um, is the wording at the beginning in Ephesus is not present in some of the ancient manuscripts. So there's question mark over who were the readers. And then at the end, when we're used to Paul giving um, what we might call the shout outs at the end of the letter, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. There's none of that at the end of, of, of Ephesians, which strikes one as odd considering he spent so much time there and had such a tearful farewell. Why doesn't he say hello to anybody in, in Ephesus? So it raises those kinds of questions. That's sort of a, uh, you know, a, a historical kind of a question. Also, some of the theology of Ephesians seems at times a little different than other parts of Paul. For example, when, when we read about salvation, salvation seems to be something in the future. In, in Ephesians, it's happened already. You have been saved. There's a very, what, what some people might call a, a realized eschatology in Ephesians. There seems to be, we're already seated in the heavenly places. So that, that's a, a kind of a development of Pauline thought that they didn't see in some of the other letters. So that's the kind of argument that's made. And then from a vocabulary standpoint, you see words that Paul um, that we don't um, often see in some of his other writings that are that are not debated, like Romans or Philippians, like that. Some of that might be a subjective argument, you know. I mean, how how do we account for somebody's choice of vocabulary or their writing style? I mean, static, you know. So it's a, some somewhat of a subjective question as to writing style. 
also, there may, you know, if Paul's in prison dictating letters to someone, it's very possible that the scribe, there's a technical name for this, an amanuensis, but that a scribe is writing what Paul is talking about. So one could argue that stylistic differences are present because the actual uh, pen is being guided by somebody else, you know, explain that. But, but the issues come up because of style, theology. That last part of historicity is particularly relevant with the pastorals because Luke ends with Paul in prison and you get the impression that he's going to just die there. It's, it's left with him in a Roman prison, rest, and, 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 and Luke ends Acts with that kind of um, uh, picture of Paul. But if the, if the um, uh, pastorals were written by Paul, he would have had to make a, a fourth missionary journey, which is not recorded in Acts. And, um, and that, you know, that has to be negotiated. Sometimes in your Bibles where you open up and you see those maps in there and they've got the Paul, you'll see sometimes a fourth journey because it has to be uh, theorized or hypothesized, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the issues. It's how do I reconcile these writings with that? Lastly, I'll say with the pastorals, you also get a sense of, of the development of the church in a way that you don't necessarily see in other letters. You know, Paul has got leaders in these churches for sure. Pastorals, sense that time's going to wrap up pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Jesus is going to come again. But then in the pastorals, you now have a formula for the propagation of the church, how to select leaders, how to select uh, what we might call bishops and deacons. And, and there's more of a sense of an infrastructure, like this is going to live on for a while which seems for some people to be at odds with what with Paul's kind of quick um, thrust, like you see in a first Thessalonians thought to be his, his first letter. So those are the kinds of issues that need to be negotiated. I'm not saying there aren't answers to them, but I am saying they, they spark questions for us. And, um, and the careful reader will acknowledge that, ah, yeah, if I, if I'm reading second Timothy, you know, may, or, or rather not second, but first Timothy uh, and Titus, how did Paul, you know, when did he write that? You know, so those are the kind of questions. They get answered in some good books. I'll make another reference to the New Testament introduction uh, co-authored by uh, D.A. Carson and, and Doug Moo. That's out the circles for a while. And they, they sort of make an apologetic for the uh, earlier dating of letters and for Pauline authorship. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a good resource to explore that more. What, how, how do you reconcile that um, personally? You don't have to give a whole uh, spill on it. Just one, <laughs> one way folks can reconcile uh, one of the, the books, one of the pastoral epistles. Yeah, I, well, for example, in 2 Timothy, there's, there's a growing, I think, growing number of scholars who are willing to see that as Pauline. Um, it does reflect Paul's thinking in some ways. I mean, we are, and then also, as I was suggesting earlier, it's fair to give somebody space to develop their thought over time. Mm -hmm. So if second, if second Timothy is reflecting the end of Paul's life, which it sounds like, and his impending martyrdom, you know, I fought a good fight. I kept the faith. Sure. Developed some thoughts about, about his, about the faith from those early days in the forties when 
he was, you know, just starting out and, and, and sending letters back. So for me, I reconcile the, the theological points by saying, surely that could have developed over time. We're talking 20 years. My own theological thoughts have developed <laughs> over time, and uh, for sure. So the, the pragmatic parts, I think, are, are able, to, we're able to reconcile that. I think I've already addressed the grammatical things. I think that can be, that, that's, you know, somewhat subjective. I think we don't have to see different hands just because some language and grammar changes. Mm -hmm. um, and then for me, I also reconcile by, by suggest in my mind, by thinking that um, um, uh, we have, that there could be uh, that amanuensis who's, who's writing, you know, with Paul's um, to be writing his, his thoughts in essence. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's part of it. I still, I, I confess though, I still have some struggles with other books like Second, Second Peter, but fitting that in, although I'm, a, uh, you know, I, I'm aware of some of the arguments, but I, but you asked about Paul in particular, but that's, that's how I, I'm dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's my, that's my next question. The, uh, okay. the authorship of John's letters and Peter's letters being that question and how, what are the questions and how do we reconcile those? So you, you led into sure. my next question. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Well, good. Um, well, uh, you know, it's interesting. Second Peter, Jude, second and third John, Hebrews, they were among um, they were among the, the late acceptance into the canon, if you will. They were they were the kind of probably a while um, wrestling over those. Um, the issue with Second Peter, um, this this notion of contending for a faith that seems to have been around for a long time at this point, you know, your your verse for Jude three, um, that that contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For some people, that feels like that's this has been around for a long time now. We're looking back on something. Mm -hmm. That's just one. But also, you know, the use. Doctor Edwards, one, one moment. I think your connection went out. Oh, it's okay. It's back now. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's the question of, of basically the timing of Second Peter and Jude. Do they reflect later concerns? And then if we know that Peter's martyred by Nero in the 60s, are those concerns really that early on in the 60s? So that's, that's part of the, the, the pressure. Um, I'll not address the stylistic concerns. Um, there's a few with First Peter even that it's a pretty sophisticated writing, and some people think, well, Peter's this uneducated fisherman from Galilee. How does he write something so um, uh, relatively sophisticated? You know, and uh, I, those arguments are again subjective. We don't know fully what his education would have been like, and how much he would have been exposed to Greek writing and style. So it's an open question in that regard. But the Second Peter Jude question does have to be considered in terms of were these theological ideas present earlier than we may have thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you said you, you wrestled through this, the second Peter one, and I know you just wrote a, a commentary on uh, Peter, but you, yours was first Peter, right? On first Peter. Right. 
Um, <laughs> and there, you know, I did have to defend a bit of Peter's authorship because I think, but I felt it was easier there. I mean, in some case, in some ways, the challenges to, to Petrine authorship of First Peter, are, I don't think are as um, stark as Second Peter. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I mentioned earlier, you know, some of this notion that he could not have uh, written something so sophisticated. But with Second Peter, the challenge is, is, I think, a little harder because of the theological ideas present. Mm-hmm. Um, what theological ideas? Mm. Yeah, now Peter and James, uh, I'm sorry, and Jude, both uh, get at these heresies that have crept in. In fact, their language is very similar and the themes, you can uh, you could line them up next to each other and see the flow of their argument against um, against the heretics mm-hmm. is very similar in both books. Um, mm-hmm. But as I'm but as I'm suggesting, those those ideas were they late or not? And so some scholars think those heretical ideas were creeping in late. Particularly what's mentioned, and without reading the text, one could look. But um, you know, Second Peter's got three chapters, Jude just the one. But you can see the themes even come in roughly the same order. Books seem to refer to um, uh, apocryphal writings, to um, to First Enoch, to um, the Testament of Moses, books that we don't have as canon. But the fact that they were in their worldview, they were in the air, also could suggest time has gone by. So, mm-hmm. so that's what makes it, that's what makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that you mentioned um, the Enoch reference in Jude, because um, I, I get people all the time wanting to read uh, Enoch because of the Jude reference and mm-hmm. kind of um, just reading through that as a, a, a way to, I guess, it, exposure. I think it's good, you know, because it's referenced in Jude um, and I see why people would want to read it for for that reason um what do we do when we're kind of encountering people who say well what about the jew passage when we talk about canonization hmm. and it's put in there and say we we agree on this we agree on the 66 books but then we have a reference to a book that we wouldn't consider um to be in the canon yeah that's a, that's a fair question. In fact, it just came up in my, I'm teaching a New Testament survey course right now, that's one that just came up. This, this <laughs> is pretty, uh, pretty uh, relevant for me. Well, one student, I think, did a really good job of answering that question. And I, if I can remember part of his answer, as he acknowledged that, um, he put it this way, he said, these writings were in the air. And I think that's a fair way to say it. It's that it's in their worldview. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he also acknowledged that you know, Paul is known to quote uh, secular poet and philosopher in his writings, or at least as Luke is telling us about Paul and Acts. And and, and and so Paul seems to also pull in, let's say, secular um, writers to make a case without necessarily canonizing those those authors or their writings in any way, but he uses it to make his case. Um, one could argue that that's always what's being done. People bring in information to make their case. I would say even with the book of Genesis going on, we have, we have an ancient cosmology at work that the writer of Genesis is relying on to tell that story. So it's not that the, um, 
materials used to tell the story have to in themselves be canonical, but they can be used to make a case for what is um, birthed by the Spirit of God to be God's eternal word. So, um, yeah, so I think that's probably the best way for me to say it. That's, I think that's a good, uh, a good kind of um, response because it's kind of like doing a research paper. You're going to pull in things that you wouldn't think are, you know, are, are maybe a, a best, the best representation of maybe your, your thoughts at your conclusions, but you're going to pull in that to kind of support the conclusion you're drawing. So um, that's probably a good analogy. Yeah. Um, my last question would be, uh, so one of the questions we get a lot is about the Gnostic Gospels. Um, people are thinking that, you know, they were excluded because they're more liberating um, in some ways. Some people have used that term. Um, it's kind of like some but the early church fathers and the councils conspired because they wanted to have a certain view pushed. Um, so they excluded certain certain passages because they were trying to push a certain viewpoint um, on on people to further oppress them. Or you know, there's you know there's different reasons people feel this way. Um, yeah. What are, What are your thoughts on that? Mm, yeah, that's fair. I think um, it's it's really hard for me to the motives of anybody. I really don't know, and I try to be fair-minded about about um, about people who seem to be seeking the truth. Yet at the same time, I don't want to be naive. Uh, for sure, um, there are ways that throughout history, the church with a capital C, I guess, has not been you know as fair-minded all the time as it could be. Um, so, but I would I my sense is that I tried to be respectful of the forebears that they were really honestly trying to safeguard what what we call the you know the regular fide the rule of faith they were trying to safeguard uh, just like Jude three the faith that had been handed down to them so when mm -hmm. later documents start to come in that challenge that and are born out of a different they saw a responsibility to not include those because it didn't jibe with the rule of faith. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, they were, uh, they were gatekeepers in a sense mm -hmm. of trying to safeguard. So I see that as a, a noble calling. I'm, I'm kind of glad I wasn't part of it because <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I mean, I think that would be tough and, and we do tend to politicize things. So I, I just honestly don't know how political it was. I try to give the benefit of the doubt to the forebears that they were seeking to keep the faith, um, accurate and, and consistent. Um, I would say the Gnostic Gospels do present a different picture of God, a different picture of Jesus. And, and um, but everyone would agree that that is a later picture. That is a later development. So I think one of the things we're also looking at is not only what are the letters saying, but, but that's why the early, I mean, the dating part, as your first question gets at, is relevant because earlier would suggest closer to the actual events and the earlier formation theological ideas as they come through through the Lord himself and come through people like uh, like Paul and, and others. So the fact that we have documents that I would say are at the very least, let's to be fair, are in the first century would would represent 
the, uh, I think, a more accurate interpretation and understanding of things as opposed to documents that are dated later and that and we would agree are dated later. Uh, um, you know, say, for example, the Gospel of Thomas couldn't have been written by Thomas. Nobody would, would even argue that. So the questions would be what ideas are present there? And, and if they're later ideas, why should we um, accept them, especially when they veer from, from what we already know that churches believe and practice? Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping I'm answering that question. Because <laughs> yeah. that does bring the conversation kind of back full circle, because when we think about when there's, you know, we're talking through an apologetic approach to defending the faith and, you know, we'll talk about, well, how do we know um, the, that these texts are reliable? We will point to um, either authorship by an apostle or close to an apostle um, written close to the time that Jesus was there, uh, trusted by the first century church as authoritative. Um, those kinds of things are, you know, the criteria for canonicity. But then when you start dating the Pauline epistles and other epistles later, and then if you can't find a connection to Paul, then you run into the same issues that you would have to, with the Gnostic Gospels. Um, a later dating, no, no, um, no kind of connection to an apostle in a sense. And so um, I think that's why going back to the first question, the authorship and the dating becomes important because then how can we differentiate between how we, the criteria for the, the New Testament, um, the New Testament um, books and Gnostic books um, besides the, the, the thought pattern in that. Hmm. No, you, you frame well, um, you know, some of the issues that are at stake. Um, I would say even still, uh, that connection to the apostles, um, yeah, I, I don't know how, what, you know, what the connection needs to be, but, mm -hmm. but that was a criteria. I mean, for example, you know, we don't know who wrote uh, Matthew, as I said earlier, or, or Mark for that matter, although there's a strong tradition that's connected to it. But the fact that they are, they seem to be really closely connected to the apostles um, helps to uh, um, make the case that you're just now making that, 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 that it's earlier, more consistent with what the church believes, or I should say more consistent, consistent with what the church believed and practiced and close to the time of Jesus. Um, it, it just helps if we know who the person was because we can put them in history. <laughs> uh, in those cases where, you know, I mean, it does help. So that's why the question comes up, though, when we have a name and we're not drunk in terms of the, the timing, that's when it becomes difficult. We don't. Yeah. So I, I but you're right. It frames the argument. If it was really late, though, um, I don't think anybody would argue for a very late time, even for the pastorals. But some try to creep uh, those books into the early second century. And then you're right. Then do they do they challenge Gnostic ideas or buy into them? I think we could still argue that they challenge the, the growing Gnostic ideas, which would still be in line with the, the faith that was once delivered to the church. So, so um, yeah, so I would say you're right in that, there, that there's a theological integrity that the, that the, um, that the uh, early, early church was going for. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I thank you. I think this has been a very rich conversation. Is there any other resources that you would recommend that you haven't already mentioned? Um, there are some good New Testament introductions out there that will give you um, this lay of the land in more detail. I've already mentioned Carson Mu, mentioned uh, Metzger on the canon. I mentioned F.F. Bruce on the canon. There's a New Testament introduction that's, I think, quite accessible by Mark Allen Powell called Introducing the New Testament, Mark Allen Powell. And, um, and then there's, of course, the writings of the New Testament by Luke Timothy Johnson. So you'll get a lay of the land on these things. And I think, um, like, like you said at the beginning, this sense of intellectual honesty and wrestling with things, I think that's good for, especially for those of us who, who might uh, bear the, the, the title evangelical in some sense of that word. Um, we want to uh, be fair to the, to the data but, and not just take, you know, a viewpoint hook, line, and sinker. So those are good resources, I think, that allow us to make educated, credible decisions and not throw out babies with bathwater. Yes. And how can people get in contact with you? Sure. Um, I think uh, one way to find me easily is Facebook. I'm, uh, you know, it's Facebook slash, Facebook.com slash Rev. Dr. Dre. And that's also my handle on Twitter, Rev. Dr. Dre, um, R-E-V-D-R-D-R-E. And I'm also, uh, as I mentioned, the senior pastor of the Sanctuary Covenant Church. So sanctuarycov.org is our website, and you can find my email there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Um, Edwards. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate your work. God bless you. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it